So hello and welcome to Sam for Uncut, a show where we talk about developer tools and the people that are behind those. With us today, we have Jacob Smith from Packet. Hi, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Tarko. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. Jacob, feel free to go forward and introduce yourself. Okay, uh, great. Well, thanks so much for arranging this. I know we had to do the usual thing and change the schedule a few times, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's busy days for everyone. But uh, it's great to be here. A little bit about me. So, uh, as you said, I'm with Packet. I'm a co-founder. And we started the company about four and a half years ago. As part of that journey, I got to wear all the hats, right? I have a Packet hat today. But at the beginning, you know, it was me and my brother. We started the company together. He had a background in infrastructure. I had a background in marketing. And so as part of that, I wore a lot of hats. I helped on the product side for a long time in the beginning, even running the product team for a while, and then moved closer to my home base of you know, customer success and, and marketing. Uh, right now, I even direct sales and alliances. So it's one of those things where as a co-founder, you get to do all the things and then you learn to delegate to people who are way better than you are, yeah. uh, which is a really exciting part of the journey right now. Yeah. I can confirm that. So it's like every every year, year and a half, maybe two years, you kind of change your hat, as you said, and you have to learn something new. Yep. Yeah, it's, that... it's, it's really fun to do that. It's a little hard because each year it's a new company. Sometimes every three months it's a new company, but it's been a lot of learning and a lot of excitement. Yeah, as you said, it's something hard, but on the other hand, that's what uh, you know makes it exciting. You will blink and then it will be 10 years, <laughs> but it's really fun because it will be a different company than it is around. That's right. Now. That's right. We earned all of our gray hairs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. If we have them. <laughs> That sounds like a great combination that you had someone, you know, in the beginning who was very technical and the other side who someone who understand marketing. Mm. Uh, so in the wearing those different hats from, you know, customer success and so on. So maybe you can share a bit about that journey of like customer success and, uh, yeah. you know, transitioning through those roles that you had. Yeah, well, it ties right into our founding story. So for anyone who doesn't know, Packet is generally known as a bare metal public cloud. We like to describe ourselves a little differently. We're in the business of automating fundamental infrastructure. We happen right now to have three products, one of which is a public cloud. We're in 20 locations. We deliver a sort of, you know, EC2 style experience, but with bare metal and physical networks. That's kind of our place in the market. We also offer an on-premise uh, software-only version and then an edge distribution model. Either way, it's the same experience and the same technology under the hood. We're just really good at turning computers on and off, right? That's like... <laughs> It's not rocket science here. I think that the background of it was really like, why enter the cloud business in 2014, 15? I mean, it wasn't like, you know, you, ah, I know, we'll go disrupt uh, Amazon and Google yeah. and Microsoft. <laughs> they should be vulnerable. <laughs> no, it's really about what we, we thinking in infrastructure, you tend to think like 10 years ahead. It's like building railroad tracks. It's really slow. And infrastructure in the cloud is just like infrastructure in the other world. There's a lot of physical parts to it, a lot of capital you know, this is really tying into my experience is you listen to the users and you look at the cycles of you know, product and product market fit. And what we saw is that the public cloud really represented mass adoption of automation for IT, right? for pretty generic workloads, really big workloads. And that what we saw coming next was the natural sort of specialized workload and, and was a change in who the buyer was. So the buyer of sort of generic compute that kind of does most things for you, it's kind of like getting a free checking at the bank, you know? <laughs> it's like pretty good, works for almost everyone, it's easy to get, it's there on every corner. And we thought that there would be sort of that wealth management, you know, like that totally different than everyone else. And so understanding the customer 
and what they wanted and who they were has been really key to why we started the company and really how we've informed you know our product and our approach to everything. So that kind of combines, I think, like you said, a technical founder and my brother is my twin brother, so we know each other really well. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, he had he had about fifteen years yeah. in the cloud infrastructure space, so he knew a lot about infrastructure. And what we try to do is think, well, who is coming next, and what do they need? Thanks for sharing all that. There is one thing I mentioned, like you know, customer relationships and and all that, that. Uh, made me to like remember packet because you know just visiting the website and trying to use the service and all that it had a very different look and feel mm-hmm. when you enter when you need to you know get a bare metal you know instance because i was just mentioning uh, you know before the call we had that journey from you know doing purely bare metal then you know okay maybe we should adopt something of the cloud goodness and you know it feels that we need that we went all the way we used soft layer which is i think bought by ibm and kind of disappeared, at least in my eyes. And uh, then, you know, AWS, uh, Kubernetes then brought us to, to Google. And we ended up, you know, using two public cloud providers for some workloads, but keeping, you know, bare metal as, you know, the backbone of the workloads that really need to be efficient and uh, cost effective and, and all that. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that buying like bare metal hardware and, you know, dealing with hosting providers, which is part of what you are doing, that was a very different, you know, feeling of, you know, just having that experience. I think it's about understanding, and this is all about how you productize. We're all selling the same thing, right? We're all selling computers. <laughs> and, you know, in some way, we're all actually selling Intel technology, right? We're just packaging it in different ways. <laughs> so I think the key is, if you think of IT, IT, you know, it's the old cattle versus pets thing, yeah? And, you know, that's a server. It's dedicated to me. It's mine. It's particular. I like it. (laughs) I upgraded the RAM on it, right? It's very much a IT experience. Like you said, software. And software innovated the data center enormously, right? And sort of they took IT and made it like super efficient and actually almost fun for an IT buyer, yeah? And the thing is, if you're thinking about a cloud buyer or a developer, what matters more? It's like our best customers, you know, deploy... 100 physical machines, which is a lot of cores and a lot of RAM. I mean, it's great. One of my favorite users uh, is uh, Graham with NixOS, and he just posted on Twitter mm-hmm. about you know how much you know RAM and cores he deployed to get through like a backlog of 30,000 jobs for NixOS, right, through the CI loop. Yeah, I mean, he likes the power of the server, and he's excited by being able to get the job done, but he just destroyed them, right? There's nothing special about them. <laughs> They're just servers. And then, of course, you start to design an experience that's API-driven or that's less about upgrade, downgrade, change this, change that. And it's much more about sort of like, yeah, I'll take another one. Actually, give me five. Yeah, that's exactly the experience the developer wants. I want to make mistakes and I want to, you know, destroy this. And that's the way of thinking because generally in software, when you do something, okay, I'm tomorrow going to throw it all the way, rewrite it. There is a cost to it this time. And uh, with hardware, it usually meant, okay, I need to ask some people to do something with this physical server. And they really need to do something physically. And removing yep. that you know, barrier of like being scared to do something with that physical server, amazing yeah. thing. Physical hardware, it's not smooth, right? It has rough edges. Things are different. Uh, between physical machines, between each machine. They're not always exactly the same and they don't always behave the way you want. So our mission has always been to try to provide just the lowest level of abstraction, e.g. like the tooling, so that you could deal programmatically with that. 
instead of saying, let's abstract you so far up that you can deal with it. We're saying, let's give you tools to deal with that when it bricks itself, right? When you change the kernel and can't get back in because oops, right? Well, how do I help you deal with that? Because that's a real thing. And the reason why is not, um, and I think that's probably what we're most excited about, is, you know, why hardware? Why does it matter? It's not religious for us. It's not because VMs are bad. (laughs) VMs are great. (laughs) Um, That's all good. It's really because we see a world in which there's a lot of different kinds of hardware that makes a big difference on what we're trying to do over the next 10 years. You know, if we're trying to fly rockets to Mars and we're trying to make taxis drive themselves and we're trying to talk to the wall instead of at our screen, we just are probably going to end up with a lot of hardware that kind of looks like our phone where, you know, you started you designed this hardware around the software experience and you combine those two together. And so that means you're just going to have, we as a community, as an ecosystem of developers, just have to get good at dealing with a lot of variety of hardware because it'll make a difference to our use cases. That's a new thing, which is coming up in the last few years and empowering all those, you know, walls and satellites and, you know, uh, all those things. There is uh, one thing that uh, keeps coming up and that's ARM is uh, something that's uh, powering all that. Mm. And uh, I know from, you know, different announcements that your guys have been making actually over the years that, you, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have been using ARM before ARM, you know, existed, <laughs> kind of. So maybe you can shed some light on that. Uh, there was a recently discussion. Um, I think Linus Torvalds like wrote something. Maybe that ARM is not going to, to fly really before we, you know, make it very close to developers. You know, they need to kind of keep it in their laptops, in their hands and all that. And uh, yeah, I kind of disagree to some extent. <laughs> That's okay. You can call Linus and tell him it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the question is why ARM and what's it all about? Yeah. Our customer base and people that we are talking about are very close to the internet. And as you said, it's Intel pretty much, which is powering all our workloads. I would say that it's still far away from us, like put this in the group of, uh, you know, web developers. So maybe you can shed some light on that. Where do you see it's going and why it's so exciting? Yeah, yeah, good. Well, we got into the ARM business not really not because uh, we thought there was some massive, you know, missing product in the data center market. I mean, we're huge consumers and fans of Intel technology, and I don't see that as the reason to be excited about ARM. Uh, I do see it because of diversity. So, what the reason we got involved in ARM was because we looked around for ecosystems that we thought would support diverse hardware model. You know, what was it Tesla yesterday talking about their specialty? chip that's going to help them drive cars better than their NVIDIA chips. It's their own chip, but it's probably, and I didn't check, but I'm almost 100% sure that it's probably an ARM licensee. And the reason why in that the ecosystem has some very interesting benefits. I mean, does it make sense for, you know, I can't speak for any company, but does it make sense for, you know, an Intel to go build a chip for just Tesla's cars? Like maybe, but maybe not, right? And so... The reason why we got into ARM was because we saw diversity. We saw an ecosystem of a thousand licensees and partners who will essentially build you anything from a set-top box chip that has no fan, you know, to a 96-core, you know, dual-socket, you know, data center chip. Now, not all of those are good, and the ecosystem problems are real. But we thought that hardware getting more diverse meant that we needed to enable developers to have that in the cloud. I think it's absolutely important that it's in your laptop, like what Microsoft, you know, notebooks and stuff are doing with ARM is really critical. 
developer experience is good, but it moves pretty quickly to the cloud. When it gets real, you know, mm-hmm. it moves to the cloud. And so that's why we released an ARM server two and a half years ago. Um, since then, more use cases have come out where it makes sense. There's certain ones like around Android or around particular workloads where it's like a really good fit. Um, but to be honest, we're not religious. We don't care. I mean, I really don't care. We're going to be working on RISC-V. I'd have Power9 in my data center right now if I could. Mm-hmm. Because mainly that to me is a developer or a customer choice. And what we need to be good at is kind of automating anything, no matter what it looks like. It could be a x86 Dell server in a data center, or it could be a small ARM device on a telephone pole. It's still a computer that you need to terraform, apply, and deal with. That's what we're working on. Now that you mentioned, you know, cell phone tower and all that, one chance that we have, you you mentioned 5G. So ARM is something that I can somehow relate to. I do have it in my phone and so on. 5G mm-hmm. and, you know, how that will influence how data centers are built and, you know, how mm-hmm. all those devices are talking together. That's, uh, you know, very much out of my depth. So <laughs> but I know that you said it's something you are very excited about. So maybe you can... Yeah, you know, teach us a bit. I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a big buzzword, right? And we love buzzwords, right? Sure. Edge and 5G are all that's going to change the world. <laughs> um, so let's not start there. I think the most exciting thing about the wireless world right now is actually that there's a chance for developers to change the shape of it over the next five years. So 5G is obviously a major you know, standard that's going to change some technology. It's, it's a long time in coming. It will begin to be in lots of places, but that's sort of aligning with a bunch of other trends. The main one being that software developers just keep eating down the stack, right? So a couple of years ago, it was crazy when Alex told me he was gonna start CoreOS and begin building a new operating system. You're like, what are you talking about? And then, you know, people are like, oh, I could probably do overlay networks better than they are now. And I can probably start working on like unikernels and yeah, I mean, right. So just down, down, down. And as you get down, we've started, you know, we've kind of automated through the stack. And the one thing we haven't touched at all, you know, that's really, I'd say owned by about 10 companies in the world is the wireless stack, which we all use all the time. Yeah. Developers don't get to deploy, touch, automate, control, and use wireless, right? They get to do something up until the point where the wire takes over. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so I think that there's a really exciting things in the US. We have things like CBRS, which is called Citizens Broadband Radio Spectrum, where it's basically rentable spectrum. You can take 4G, 5G spectrum allocation and use it for just this one mile, right? Uh, so think about a football stadium. Like we have a data center, a small data center next to a football stadium outside of Boston. Well, it's not very important except for when there's 80,000 people there who exactly. want connected experiences and video and all these other things. So suddenly it's like, huh. And so what we're seeing is that wireless is starting to get democratized for developers. And I think that'll be the most exciting thing that we haven't talked about um, over the next five or 10 years is that wireless will just totally be a part of the developer stack, just like you know any other part of networking. And that's really cool. Now, 5G is causing some interesting trends. I think the biggest one is, is what I would lump into disaggregation. So basically, 5G and any other advancement is creating that much more data. Right? It's just more data. We're all using more of it. Our cars are generating petabytes of it. Right? And 5G makes it very expensive in the current model to backhaul it and deal with it. Bill it, route it, 
And so the first thing it's doing is it's taking what I would say is the first edge use case is telcos. And telcos are having to push their network out to where the people are instead of centralizing it in a few places. It's just too expensive to move all the data. So they're pushing it outwards and putting computers in every city and having it terminate and do it there. And I think that's exactly what we'll see other kinds of use cases around 5G do is say, I want to be close to that data. What can I do with that data? You know, can I do store automation? differently. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a data center. It could be a few Raspberry Pis in the back of a Chick-fil-A, Yeah, right? That's totally fine. <laughs> and so it's just a matter of moving the compute and things closer, mainly because of cost, but also because that's where the experiences are. That's where the people are. So mm -hmm. you're essentially talking here about maybe, you know, hundreds, thousands of data centers being very close to, you know, to people like every, every city. I don't know the future. Um, but the one that we're planning for architecturally mm -hmm. is uh, millions of things in thousands of places. Ten years ago, we all had an IT closet in an office building where we worked. <laughs> exactly. And that's where you get the email server, right? That's also where you ran the database. And then we moved it all to the cloud. Now, I'm just going to pretend. Just pretend that you could put parts of Zoom and parts of Slack in the IT closet again. Like, would that change what Zoom and Slack could do? For you? Would it be better, different? I don't know. That's actually not my job. That's developers' jobs to figure out, but I think it would be different. I think if we could do that, you know, then we would do what Chick-fil-A is doing and saying, ah, oh, I've got this localized data. I want to do something to get better intelligence about my business and align my supply chain. Or, I mean, that's IoT, basically, right? Or I want to think about new experiences that I can power with local GPUs. I don't need a lot of them, but I just need to do them so I can use a camera to watch everyone who comes in and out of a building and understand is that person a Airbnb uh, person or a tenant. And so this is, I think, the opportunity, whether it will be a data center that looks like what we know today or if it'll be something much different. I think that's yet to be determined, but I do think we'll see a lot of computers in a lot more places. And the current model in the cloud is to put a lot of the same thing in a few places, 15 or 20 places around the world. And I think we'll probably see the other challenge was how do I put a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Yeah, yeah. It's a different scale and different approach and different industry, but um, we saw a lot of challenges of that, you know, customers in Australia, talking to customers in Europe, you know, and data centers in US and all that. Speed of light issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, it's about the scale. And I think that you mentioned that at some point. At some scale, you don't see that. And then when you start, you know, just entering the other scale, it just a different class of problems hits you. Yep. And uh, then you discover that, that, you know, internet and network, that's like a very unreliable and very slow thing. Although you can watch 4K YouTube, but it's not streamed from the other that's, parts of the world. Yeah, it's caching. Yeah, it's caching, right? Yeah. I think um, it's funny. We, we named our company Packet because it's the, you know, it's networking terminology, right? Yeah. And it's the one thing you have to buy from a cloud provider is network. You can't not buy it. <laughs> and, uh, and yet it's kind of like one of those things that we assume just works. You know, the architecture of the Internet, it's actually really fragile in many ways. Right? It's like, oh, whoops, I kind of announced your BGP section and routed everything through China. Sorry about that. You know, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Um, I think the Internet is going to go through an overall re-architecture, right? Where basically we push the architecture of 20 years ago pretty far. 25 yeah. years ago. <laughs> and um, we've changed enormous amounts in software, enormous amounts. And I think 
that's the cool thing is that hardware and networks are going to start to move at software speed. They're going to start to be influenced by that velocity and they will have to change. Now that doesn't mean it's all going to be my way or someone else's way. I think it's going to be a lot of iteration, right? Just like Kubernetes is all the rage now. And if you ask Dan Cohn, it's like, it's a life cycle. Five years from now, it'll be something else. That's how it goes, right? We go through these waves. And I think it's just a little more complex of a challenge when you talk about infrastructure because it's so expensive to deploy it <laughs> and to put it in market and to put glass in the ground or cables under the ocean. So there's a little bit of a nuance there that we <laughs> will have to work together <laughs> you know, between you know, the ecosystems to figure out how to get the best results. Yeah, true. Uh, we as like software developers, that like physical world is you know so far away from us. And as new generations of developers are coming up, you know maybe IoT has an opportunity to influence them and to you know move them closer to hardware. But are you seeing that through your company, right? So people are asking you. I'm sure that they're building for more kinds of devices for IoT, right? Yeah, we know that we have, you know, iPhone for more than 10 years and all that, but it was kind of a single thing. And as you were mentioning throughout this conversation that it's a many of those little and very diverse things. So that seems to be picking up. So people want to talk with different things and, you know, test them and, and, and all those things. They got to do it on CI. You know, this is the thing. Yeah. And that's, I think, a huge opportunity. Uh, we were working with our friends at Grafana recently on how can we bring cloud-native metrics and monitoring to all the other stuff down below. Because at some point, yes, I need to know about my PDUs and my switches and my BMCs and all these things, right? Because, I mean, right now it may be in a data center, but what if it's at a phone pole? Like, what if that really special, expensive, cool, does the thing I need it to do widget is not in your building, you know, like, or, you know, there's all kinds of just issues there. I think it's super cool, uh, but it all requires software and testing. So how do you automate testing against a growing variety of hardware, right? Even just think about GPUs, right? GPUs and yeah. accelerators. And suddenly you have a whole nother layer, Mellanox and NVIDIA or whatever. They're releasing hardware every 12, 18 months. That's noticeably different. And I think you can see that in, I mean, look at Google. I mean, they release an entire, you know, TPU hardware thing with software, like 18 months. So I think we're going to see the challenges of that coming to software development, where especially as we're selling to enterprises who say like, yes, cool, I'll buy that, but support it for 10 years. <laughs> you know, yeah. then we start to have this legacy and this broadening variety, and we're going to need to think about how we do that. Maybe one final topic, uh, which is closer to developers, which we were mentioning, but this is not the territory that they are, you know, thinking about and seeing. So I think that's one of the reasons that this could be exciting for a lot of people. But you mentioned Kubernetes, the way that it is changing the landscape and there is that, you know, multi-clouding or hyper-cloud. You mentioned AWS and they're covering a territory which is, you know, IT-oriented, what you mentioned. And you being like a very different company in that area, how you work. How do you see Kubernetes influencing that and maybe changing how the light shines on Packet and AWS and, you know, other providers? It's certainly making a huge difference. And we don't have a, I mean, I was, I was just working on a blog post, speaking of marketing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure we're all working on that next blog post, right? <laughs> um, but for me, I was working on a blog post about like, oops, we forgot to build a managed Kubernetes service. <laughs> and, and it's true, love, we I don't. We don't, and we, and we won't. 
And that's not helping us. It doesn't help us. You know, I've got customers who would say, well, I'd, I'd move everything over to you if you had a managed Kubernetes easy button. Yeah. And, you know, my answer, and I think it's presenting a challenge to us as a company, is really testing our values. Like, mm-hmm. what, are we, what are we trying to do here? People build businesses, whether their name is Red Hat or, you know, we're working with Google for GKE on-prem, or their name is something that just started up yesterday. We're not in the software business. We're not in the as-a-service business. That's what the ecosystem of really excellent software companies like Elastic and Grafana are in. That's what they do. And so it's presenting a challenge for us, um, but I think it's okay. We're kind of working through it because in the end, it makes everything more portable and provides, I'd say, that single kind of control plane that people are looking for, whether they're at Google or Amazon or Packet or on-prem. I don't think we're there yet. I think that there's still basically a reflex of Kubernetes ecosystem to assume primitives yeah. that you can't take home with you. Oh, well, it's everything's fine. You just need an object store. You know, yeah. oh, everything's yeah. fine. You just need a really good load balancer. And then suddenly, I think as we're pushing things into enterprises, and I think that's where it's going, right? So we're telcos and, you know, banks and other people are saying, yeah, but so I've got this problem in that I, you know, I need to have stuff in Geneva and there's no cloud there and and then I have to bring all that myself and so the the ecosystem I think is reacting to that and starting to say just bring it as software instead of assume that it'll always be there right and that's I think a big shift for Kubernetes and I think we'll be on the other side of that in a very good way. Yeah, Kubernetes is, uh, I would say, in very early stages. As a data center operating system, it will be around for a very long time because the world uh, wanted something like that for the last like, 20 years, but it was not around. Primitives are there, but there's still a lot of things to be built on top of that. So, yep. yeah, I love the title of your blog post. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll finish it and you see if you like the blog post. <laughs> yeah, please send it over and we'll share it. <laughs> Well, I think that's one of the big topics of the day. Obviously, open source is going through a moment. And as a cloud provider, you have an enormous advantage. And I don't judge the business models of any other cloud. I think it will all work out. But I do think that you make a decision about are you in the software business and you just happen to own the real estate and the data centers and the hardware and the connectivity and everything? Or are you in the infrastructure business? And for us, it's really clear we're in the infrastructure business. We invite partners to be in the software business to build on top of us. Almost all of our customers are delivering a service kind of like you are, right? Like to their users. And that's why we've decided, hey, you get to choose. Do you want multi-tenancy? Do you want virtualization? Do you not want that? And you'll decide because you have opinions about that and they matter to you. And I think that's an important part of who we are. And hopefully, of course, we can build a great business with that in mind. Yeah. Great. Great. So it was a pleasure talking to you. I don't know if I have maybe missed to ask something which you think is very important and you would like to share it. I think I know how to talk about a lot of things, but mainly I just love that I've been as a, I didn't tell my background, but my training is not as a marketer or as a technologist. I was trained as a musician and my brother was as well. Funny enough, he was a Juilliard grad. And I just find that you can come in with creativity and you can come in and say, I have a new way of doing things. I'd like to try that. It's one of the most exciting things that we can do. And so technology aside, it's a really, I think it's Tim Hawkins said, it's an exciting time for boring infrastructure. And for me, like a musician and my colleagues and, you know, everyone comes from a different background, uh, but they bring ideas and say, you know what? I think we could do that better. That would be cool. And that's what's so exciting to me about software as well. It's like, you know what? I've got an idea about how that could work better. And that's, going to be really important for how this world works. Uh, If we want to do all the things we want to do and keep the planet healthy and 
you know, figure it out, we're going to have to come up with new ideas. And so that's uh, just an exciting part of being in the business. So I'm, I feel very fortunate. Being able to welcome all the makers, you know, people who want to make things and ship products, that's an exciting thing to be in. I love that part of this industry, uh, yeah. that people from very diverse backgrounds can come in and contribute, you know, in a very yeah. creative ways. So... Yeah, and I think it's generational too. We're a generation of builders and makers, and that's why abstracting us away from some of the things is really intriguing to me. So what I say, build right, build yeah, a better yeah. internet. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And All right, yeah, Tucker. good luck. Yeah, we'll see you online. See you. Yeah. Bye.